podcasting from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, known as the City of Bridges. This is Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. I am your host, Christy Knights, C-suite executive coach, psychotherapist, professional speaker, and best-selling author, the revolutionary leader in business and life. Welcome to Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, Conversations of Influence and Change. I am so excited today for our guest. Wait until you hear what she has to offer. Let me introduce to you a dear friend of mine. Her name is Deborah Levine. She has 33 years of experience in speaking, consulting, and coaching around cultural diversity. Born in Brooklyn and brought up in the Bermuda, she has lived, worked, and studied in every region of the U.S. Deborah is a well-known speaker at universities, corporations, national conferences, and service associations. With advanced degrees in anthropology, religion, and urban planning, she also coaches professionals, civic leaders, and executives in international industries, including Volkswagen, Nissan, and the international paper. She is editor-in-chief of the American Diversity Report and an award-winning author of 13 books. She is a busy woman. Her articles are published in the Huffington Post, Harvard Divinity School Bulletin, and multiple magazines and academic journals. Deborah's Matrix Model Management System is a copyrighted cognitive technology for thought leadership. Her book, Going Southern, Nomad's Guide to Success in the South, was featured on CSPAN, C-SPAN, and an entertaining and educational manual cross-cultural communications. Well, Deborah, that is quite a list of accomplishments. We're so pleased to have you today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So share with us a little bit about where you get all of this energy. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I get that question quite a bit, and half of me is not really sure. Uh, But part of me is uh, understanding that there's a sense of urgency, that I share what I know, that I learn every day and share that too, because I'm never quite sure how long I'm going to be on this earth. Okay. Yes, that is very true. So at what age do you feel like you you came to this place where you're like, you know what, I don't know how long I'm going to be on this earth? Uh, It happened as a teenager. Yes. And uh, I was, uh, at the time... Uh, living with my my family in on Long Island in New York, going to high school, uh, I was having a, a wonderful academic uh, experience. I was also a, a dancer. I played the violin. I was in the choir. I I was busy, <laughs> and one day I woke up and got out of bed and fell over. Oh, okay. And um, that was the beginning. Uh, They didn't know what happened. In fact, I may never know, uh, but I lost the use of uh, one, one leg for a while, went through all kinds of tests, much of which showed very little, and was told that maybe I shouldn't go to Harvard, that I, uh, who knew what would happen to me. And um, I decided 
that whatever time I had, whatever energy I had, I was going. And if I ended up <laughs> flat on my face in the middle of Harvard Square, so be it. But I was going. Wonderful. Whenever you think about your childhood, can you share what was mom and dad like? What was it like growing up with your family? So um, as, as you saw in my bio, uh, while I was born in the States, I was really brought up in Bermuda. Uh, I, we went back to Bermuda uh, when I was just a baby uh, and joined my grandparents there. Um, we were uh, the only Jewish family on the island to have lived and worked there for four generations. Wow. Uh, and so uh, we were uh, very much a part of the island and yet quite uh, well known. <laughs> and I was the only Jewish little girl on the island most of those years. Uh, and uh, growing up in a British colony uh, was somewhat like being a, a, a character in a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Quite, yes. indeed. And uh, it was uh, a beautiful place. Uh, I, I still miss the beaches, the pink sand, and, and the, the tone and tender of this island. It's only like 24 square miles, although my Aunt Polly says it's 28. We will <laughs> agree to disagree on that. I'm sure it makes a huge difference to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> And um, it was one of those things where I learned to read. Uh, British schools are, are very strict. You learn or else. Wow. Okay. So I started reading uh, when I was probably four or five. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Fairy tales, legends. Oh, my goodness. You travel the world in books. It certainly gave you a place to go that was quiet and allowed you to escape for some time. When you're an introvert, there's nothing better. Mm. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. So did you have siblings? Yes, I did. Uh, and I, I, I opened my book, The Magic Marble Tree, with a story about myself and my older brother that shows both a little bit about Bermuda and also about us. Uh, I'm out in the garden of our home called Shadow Lawn. Houses had names, have names in Bermuda. And I'm playing with my marbles, my, my cat's eye marbles. And my older brother, I'm about five, he's about four years older. My older brother comes out and says to me, you know, if you plant one of those marbles in the garden, you're going to get a magic marble tree. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I did. I thought oh, that sounds perfect. And I waited and I waited and guess what? No sign of a tree coming up. <laughs> so a few weeks later, I say to Joe, my older brother, I said, you know, something's wrong. No tree. And he says, I can't believe you fell for that. <laughs> Aww, yes. And that pretty much describes Joe and me. <laughs> fun. It sounds like a fun friendship with siblings. <laughs> it was it was unique. And then we had a younger a younger brother. There was a 
uh, a younger brother who who died shortly after birth, but there was a another younger brother who who lived and who had a very unique personality of his own. Mm, okay, so it certainly was a busy household. Yes, it was very busy. Um, my father had been a military intelligence officer for the the States for America during World War II, and I didn't know it at the time, but he had been assigned to interrogate Nazi prisoners of war. And uh, he was not generally the warm and fuzzy daddy that uh, many people have, but he was uh, driven and worked for my grandfather, who was kind of warm and fuzzy, and together it was a, a, a very good a partnership in which they built the very first shopping mall Wow! Uh, in Bermuda. Incredible. And uh, my mom uh, had been during the war uh, a student at Radcliffe. That's the women's part of Harvard. And she had pioneered special education. And I didn't find her papers from that period until fairly recently. I put them in the magic marble tree. And she was a teacher, always. And even when we were in Bermuda and growing up, she taught uh, at the Bermuda High School for Girls, which I also attended. Yes, yes. Wow. That's amazing. Such um, such genes that you come from of intellectual value as well as uh, work value. And that's wonderful. Very much so. And very, very dedicated to to making a difference and helping people. And uh, and keep in mind, my grandfather only had an eighth grade education. His families were you know, immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, Poland, and driven. Yes, yes, that is incredible. So what led you, like through your teenage years and through your early 20s, what led you here to the United States? Okay, so um, coming to the States was actually not my choice at all. In fact, I, I really didn't care for the States at first. I was still pretty young when my dad decided to move us to America so we could have uh, a real Jewish community and experience. And uh, so um, I was about seven or eight, and we moved to Long Island, uh, and um, I hated it. <laughs> every concrete highway loud obnoxious rude yeah. <laughs> and my parents um, were able to find a way for me to love it uh, by taking me to museums and art galleries and down to Broadway Mm, okay, yeah. And so I could see mostly musicals. Wonderful. Uh, it, was, it was, it was. I, I just uh, re- remember my mom taking me to see South Pacific for a birthday, birthday present and falling in love, seeing Richard Burton mm-hmm. perform live in Hamlet. Uh, seeing Martha Graham perform on stage and dance. Wow. How could I not? I've been very fortunate. Yes, yes, absolutely. So as you're going through these life transitions from, you know, uh, 
a young age of losing the use of your leg temporarily to moving to the States. How did you cope with those life transitions? Uh, the, f- the first time when uh, when I realized that I, I was not going to be able to dance anymore, or at least I thought it would never happen again, was devastating. And all of the medical tests were, it just set me apart from any friends that I had. Many of them couldn't understand why I couldn't keep up why I had to take the elevator in the school instead of not the stairs. Um, And they quietly sort of dropped away. And so the sense of being alone in this mess was extreme. And it was disappointing because uh, I had been planning to be part of a, a dance group to perform at the World's Fair in New York that year, and that was not to be. And I had been made um, the president of the dance company at the high school. Oh, my goodness, yes. And I went to the teacher who was the over the company, the dance company, and I said, you know, I, I know I was elected to this position, uh, but uh, I can't dance, and I, I will probably need to resign. And here's where there was an interesting event. And she said, no way. You don't resign. You take on a different role. Ah, I like that. I well, what can I do? Yeah. And she said, pretty much everything. She said, I want you to look at the choreography, the lighting, the costumes, I want you to oversee all of that and then delegate the dancing. Wow, such a leadership role. No, I said, oh, well, me? Well, <laughs> I don't know anything about any of that. She said, well, you do now because you're in charge. <laughs> and so uh, I embarked, um, despite everything that happened with my leg, on this wonderful leadership voyage and fell in love with being in charge and did the choreography and chose the music, oversaw the lighting, creating all kinds of lighting options that with whatever technology I could find that hadn't existed before. I learned to invent. Wonderful. And just that opportunity to take something that was so tragic for you and her to give you that place of purpose and value in that moment is is critical in healing. It was. It was very healing because I had already given up the violin to do the dancing and uh, and and the singing, and so I would have had nothing. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, as those doors closed, this one opened, and it was um, it was interesting. I I started writing about it. I had always, you know, been a reader, and I had I started writing at the same time. I didn't have the same artistic outlets, and writing came a friend. 
Oh, that's wonderful. So this was really a catalyst to your identity. Yep. Yeah, that expression of identity through writing. Yep, indeed. In fact, I had always written and, and found in writing the ability to be myself without having other people censor me and whatnot, because I didn't show it to many people. <laughs> um, I wrote it for essays, and I had a diary. Mm-hmm. I always kept a diary. Um, but as I, even before this event, I was writing and, and finding my voice, annoying teachers with my bluntness. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and started writing poetry. But it all is started. It, it intensified, uh, and I had. I guess I, uh, having started it already, I just magnified it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as you saw your role change, how did your peers around you respond to that? Some were, uh, by this time it was our, going into our, I think our senior, senior year. Many of my friends then were able to overlook that I couldn't keep up physically and this gave me a, uh, a persona that uh, they could uh, identify with. And in many ways, it, it brought a, a lot of social networking, <laughs> as you will, to me. However, uh, this is um, the time of, of where the whole issue of Harvard came up. And um, the having gotten into Harvard put me in a different uh, uh, realm <laughs> uh, and uh, the young men uh, started to want to date me, especially the ones that were going to college. Mm-hmm. And many of them had never looked at me before, whether my leg worked or not, because I was kind of a geek. And <laughs> I was definitely a geek. That's yeah, <laughs> and I wasn't really that open. I was an introvert, and you know, leave me alone. So uh, the whole experience of senior year was a a revelation uh, about uh, human nature that I I I think I'm still processing. <laughs> It is a journey, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you want one. <laughs> my brother, my brother Joe, once called me the most oblivious person on the face of the planet. <laughs> oh my goodness! Do you believe that to be true? In some ways, yes. Uh, I live, okay. I, I, my mind often lives in outer space to create the artistry that I do. Uh, and uh, I joke sometimes I do, you know, light down on this planet uh, and visit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can see where the creative side of you would tend to do that, right? When I'm creative, I feel like I'm not of, of this world, but you have done so many amazing things. What led you to cultural anthropology? Ah, so I'm at uh, I'm in Harvard, uh, freshman year. You're you're required to take all kinds of of courses, 
Uh, by the way, uh, I was required to take a remedial writing course. Because <laughs> really, <laughs> um, anyone who goes to Harvard should be prepared for an intellectual boot camp experience like none other. And uh, so, uh, uh, by the time at the end of that freshman year, you were called into. Oh, let me let me run that back a little bit. I I thought I was on campus in the best intellectual atmosphere in the world, and I should explore things. So I went over to Harvard Divinity School and took a course there in the history of Buddhist thought, uh, not realizing that a freshman wasn't really allowed to do that. But uh, by the time they found out I was over there, it was too late. So um it was time to choose a major and they call you in, the dean of the college calls you in. Uh, I, they asked me what I'd like to do. And I said, well, I, I would like to major in world religions. And I was informed that there was no such major. And I said to the dean, well, I realize that, but I'm here to uh, say that I will create that major for you and would be <laughs> And you can imagine the response was, some, was indeed something, hey, we took you into this class uh, for you because you're so interesting. But now that you're here, you're going to major in English and economics like everybody else. Needless to say, I did not. And <laughs> it was the first year where a major called Folklore and Mythology was created. Mm -hmm. And I signed up for that. And within that, uh, because it was an honors major, you had to have a sort of minor. And I, I chose um, the ancient Near East, which landed me back at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, there, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, um, that lasted for a year or two, enough for me to understand that a, a sophomore female Jewish girl at Harvard Divinity School <laughs> has a certain number of challenges that most of the students there do not. Well, what else is new, right? So I, I don't know if it was the pressures or, or, or what, but uh, at that point, halfway through, it became very, very sick and had to leave. Again, people weren't sure just what happened. Uh, I know now yeah. that there are, were some genetic issues as well as the stress. There were, mm, okay. there were uh, in those days, they couldn't tell you that you were a celiac person and shouldn't eat anything with gluten. Uh, yes. That would come decades later. Um, so I... I had to go home, and um, oh gosh, okay. They didn't know what happened. I, I lost half of my body weight. wasn't wasn't sure if I would live. Oh my, okay. You were very ill at this time. Yes, and and running. I I don't know quite what happened. Ran a fever, high fever for weeks. It was really um, dangerous. Wow. Okay. How are you feeling emotionally at that time? The unpredictableness of it and yet the severity of it 
was almost beyond comprehension. It, it certainly reminded me of what had happened a few years ago as a teenager, you know, with these inexplicable things happening. But this was much more severe. I was terrified. And for a few weeks, uh, I couldn't be alone. And my mother s- slept in the, my, my bedroom with me for a while. And um, But there was... <laughs> it was uh, not going away. And so uh, they eventually called in a psychiatrist, someone who I had met while I went through the, the teenage year problem, a kind lady. Uh, and uh, she came to the house to talk to me. And I said to her, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I guess they're playing this beautiful music for us downstairs because I hear it. She says to me, uh, there's no music. Mm, okay. darling. <laughs> well, it was, it was beautiful. It was Bach violin concerto. It was one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, and it was at that point when it was decided that I would go to a psychiatric daycare. <laughs> well, yeah. And um, I came home at night. Um, but uh, for the next six months, I was part of this, uh, I don't know what you call it, outpatient. That's what it sounds like, an outpatient support system. Yes. One of my friends calls it like a psychiatric summer camp, but I'm mm-hmm. sure that's quite... <laughs> it's a summer camp, right? Yeah. Um, it was a fascinating experience that uh, I, at the time didn't quite know what to make of. It was so different from anything I'd ever experienced, and the people were different. I write about it in the magic marble tree for the very first time. Oh, wow. Great. It took me almost 50 years to write about it. Wow. That's that's how difficult it is for people to absorb this kind of situation and to... um, Make it so that others can see it through it, see it through your eyes, and then understand for themselves some of the takeaways. Right, right. And I've been very fortunate that those who have read it have resonated to what I said about this situation, about what I went through. They have loved ones or they themselves have gone through this. And uh, so many people, more than I ever thought back in the day, I thought I was all alone. Uh, And it's been a revelation to me that speaking about it has been such a help for people. So very powerful, which is why we do podcasts like this and are willing as leaders to be so vulnerable, even if it can be painful or it was painful getting to that place, knowing knowing the service that it offers to others and the healing it offers, offers to others is just um, very rewarding, um, despite the pain we may have gone through to get there. I think so. And I think that, that uh, watching, uh, seeing or experiencing your your classmates or your, your camp <laughs> mates 
uh, go through the similar things and what they have to say, what they're dealing with, you know, family issues, career issues, uh, health, all kinds of things that are so human and just overwhelm them. Right. Did they share with you at the time what you were being treated for? Did they share a a diagnosis of any kind? They did. They didn't know quite what to do with me um, because here I was, successful Harvard student uh, with all kinds of of experience in the arts at such a young age. I think at this point I was only 19 or 20. Um, So they decided I was, I must be, schizophrenic or something to account for the extreme differences. The reality is there's never been any, any proof of that whatsoever. Um, I was so physically sick. Mm. And what we found at that point was that the medical community in those situations where they couldn't really pinpoint what was wrong would put you in some sort of psychiatric category that felt good to them. And there was an interesting incident in which I I talked with uh, uh, the the psychiatrist uh, that I mentioned before, uh, somewhat after all of this happened and I was working. And and she told me that, um, she said, I want you to know that I had another young woman uh, referred to me in part by her uh, sports coach with a similar similar issues, and uh, they wanted they assumed that it was all uh, psychological. And I said, and she says, based on what I saw with you, I told them to go back to the medical community and find out what is wrong with this young woman that if it had been a young man, they would never have sent that person to me with that kind of uh, diagnosis. And so now find out what is wrong with her and treat her, for goodness sakes. And she thought that that would make me feel better, knowing that what I'd gone through helped somebody else not have to do so. Okay. I I felt better. Not great, but better. Sure. It gives you that less, uh, less crazy feeling whenever there are answers. And you're right, you know, a, a long time ago, the medical community would just quickly sweep it under the rug as to not look um, like they didn't know what they were doing or not look like they could find that answer. Mm-hmm. Sadly, there were many people who were wrongly diagnosed with schizophrenia saw that time and again, when instead it truly was, you know, things like post-traumatic stress disorder. So we were seeing trauma-related symptomology when stressors were so high, like disassociation, which is related to anxiety and depression. It makes a lot more sense to people. So after those those six months of being in the, the outpatient intensive care, how did you transition back into, into life again? Uh, so uh, I graduated. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I had a few pithy things to say to the doctors. And 
uh, I went off and um, went home. And my dad, uh, military style, insisted that I get a job. And he says, I don't care what. Put an ad into the newspaper for uh, requesting a job. Um, so I did. <laughs> he being a bit naive, I, I I put it in the New York Times, right? And the <laughs> <laughs> at 7 a.m. the next morning, I get a call that was inviting me to basically partake in some pornographic. <laughs> oh, wow. Here we go. <laughs> And oh. uh, no, thank you. My <laughs> first, the first hint that my father, who seemed to know everything, might not quite. <laughs> so I went uh, and answered some ads, and I ended up being a gal Friday in the garment district, which now is more of a historical uh, district. But in those days, it, it was uh, a place where uh, the Jewish community had traditionally. Been involved in uh, warehouses and manufacturing of clothing, and I, I got this uh, this goofy goofy job as a gal Friday in an old warehouse, and um, it was uh, an introduction to a work environment, the likes of which I had never anticipated. <laughs> Wild, crazy, practical jokes. On everybody, but especially the ladies. Uh, oh gosh, I write about it in the book because it was so unlike anything I'd ever experienced, with the possible exception of my older brother. And it was like landing in a world of older brothers gone amok. And <laughs> and I, I I think of it as uh, a a time where uh, you got to see life in different a different mode and this particular uh, organization uh, sold the denim seconds those are leftovers to uh, to latin america so this was my first exposure to uh, uh dealing with uh, a trade and and marketing uh, into a different country uh, and i loved it and it was something that uh, stayed with me always despite the goofiness of it <laughs> there was benefit in it there was a lining <laughs> what i tell people is you you really you don't lose as much as you think you do in some of these goofy jobs you gain some information some education that you can apply in ways later on that will amaze you Absolutely. It's always that positive that you're able to find despite everything that you have been through. So walk us through then, you know, after college and getting that first job, when did you really begin to come into this place where you are now? Share with us that journey. So um, we we left New York for Cincinnati uh, and uh, my dad had uh, a new job. In, uh, in Cincinnati, and uh, I wasn't earning enough to, to live in Manhattan. And so I went with them, and uh, what happened there is uh, I got a job in a library, which I thought was perfect for me, but I, again, I ended up very ill. Oh, gosh, okay. And so um, what was I going to do? Uh, and um, 
it was a, a, a real, a, a, another time of changing uh, completely. Uh, and uh, what I decided was I would eventually um, <laughs> leave my parents' house. I, I, I thought, you know, if not now, when? So when I, I got a little better, I just took off. And uh, I went down to uh, where the university was, and I got a job. I, I don't know quite how I, I interviewed, and they liked me. I got a job as an executive director of a nonprofit uh, on campus uh, because of all that I had done. And it was a religious, it, it was actually Christian, but it was a, a religious uh, campus uh, ministry. And it was my first introduction to being a leader of a nonprofit, and I loved it. And I've been a leader, a executive director in nonprofits off and on now for most of my career. You know, now I would translate those skills into an entrepreneurial position so that when, again, I was not feeling well and, and had to leave that job, uh, I created um, a business of my own. Ah, great. So leading nonprofits, and of course, it, it interests me since I have my own nonprofit that I founded two years ago. <laughs> what have you found across time to be the biggest challenge for you in leading nonprofits? Well, it's sort of like herding cats. Uh, and you have a board, you have advisors, you have all these different people with ideas, some of them wonderful, some of them um, more disruptive. <laughs> and you have to pull it all together to move forward. And you do that every day. And it's very time consuming, but it's also very rewarding. You create projects for the community and you delegate. And, and it's a little bit like being the... Um, the artistic director of a dance company. <laughs> you do the choreography and the costumes and the lighting and the PR and everything. So it it, it was it, it it just seemed to fit well, uh, despite the fact that uh, it's a twenty four seven job. Yes, very <laughs> much so. Yes, all the time. And I think you know sometimes one of the challenges that I continue to have is is finding, um, I absolutely love my board members. They are great people. They each have their own set of skills, but it's difficult to find board members who are committed long-term, right? They may be enthusiastic initially, then getting them to attend board meetings, respond to messages becomes less and less frequent. Um, and I begin to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, here's where uh, my, you know, I, I when I told you I, I was an entrepreneur, I created a dance studio and I taught. Part of me it was like my mom. I taught. I, I, I remember my mom telling me that uh, it was all about persuasion. And, and she said, <laughs> she said, you can't get better than positive reinforcement. And she said, some people will call it bribery, but let's not go there. And so <laughs> it, isn't it cool? And her lessons to me, along with my father's incredible organization, 
which did lead me, by the way, during all this period, to get a master's degree in urban planning, which I designed specifically for arts and culture, uh, to blend all that I had known and experienced together uh, into something that would be a profession uh, that I created, and it was me. That makes it very powerful, and the ability to then truly direct it from a place of passion rather than obligation. Yes, exactly. And and I remember um, when I was about to start, okay, so I, I started something called the Women's Council on Diversity here in Chattanooga and, uh, and morphed it then into a consulting agency that created also a global leadership class, which is where I started to uh, train internationals coming into the South. I thought I'd do one more uh, nonprofit, and uh, the gentleman in charge of the foundation informed me that this was a bad idea. And I said, why? I've done it always. And I, I miss it. He said, you go, you're going at a speed that a nonprofit can't contain. And he said, you, you're looking a mile ahead through the front, uh, through the windshield, when most people are looking in the rear view mirror. Mm, I like that. I oh. like that. And he says, you can quote me. So I'm quoting him. And I said, you need the independence and to do all those inventions. Let's put a halt to the nonprofits for the moment. And I said, okay. And that's when I started uh, writing and the number of books started to increase incredibly. Yes, yes. I, You know, 13 books, so many books. So can you share with us, you know, a, just a little secret? How are you getting so many books written? <laughs> <laughs> the first things that I, that I published were articles. When I was in Chicago doing my interfaith work, I ran a, a national interfaith coalition and uh, conference and um, had I knew people who asked me to write an art a, a chapter in a book and so I did then I, I thought well I got paid this is cool let me write a book so I went back to them and said I, I have an idea for a book and they said to me have you ever written one no do you know how uh, not really and I was very fortunate in finding this mentor which I hope other people will do and they decided to teach me chapter by chapter ah yeah and they took me through the whole process piece by piece by piece and it turned out not only to be beautiful but it won an actual award Oh, that's amazing. Wonderful. <laughs> but it was a lot of work, and I, I swore I'll never do that again. Yeah. But <laughs> when you are driven to write, don't resist. Go for it. And so I started again with articles. That's a good way to get started. And then go ahead and plan your book. And I know that it's hard for people to do that. So I have written a manual called Write That Book, Tell Your Story. 
which takes you through step by step. It's a workbook, how to get started, how to flesh it out, how to make it come alive. Wonderful. And how can people find that book? Uh, it's on Amazon called uh, Write That Book, Tell That Story by Deborah Levine. And it's a, a quick, easy way for people to tell that story in writing and make a difference doing it. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. And we will find all your other books on Amazon as well? Yes, you will. But there's all, they are also up on my, on my website, uh, DebraLevine.com. Great, great, good. We want everybody to go to your website and check out all of the books and buy every one of them. <laughs> they are all exceptional. <laughs> so can you share with us a little bit about the Matrix Model Management System? Yes. Okay. So um, when I was uh, forming the Women's Council on Diversity, Chattanooga was becoming a, a global village, and we weren't really ready for it. Um, it was a small southern city, not quite as international as we are now, that's for sure. And I wanted to help people make the transition, and I knew that it meant a different mindset, a global mindset. And because of everything I've gone through and traveled and whatnot, uh, I have the ability to move from one culture to another. And so I tried to think what allows me to do that. And I put it together in this workbook and textbook called The Matrix. Um, the Matrix, if you're a computer geek, uh, it was the very basics of the computer language back in the 60s. And my mother insisted I take that course because she said computers would be the future of us. And I did, unwillingly, but I did. And it turns out that the ability to, ch to handle big data is key. And so the matrix handles the big data through and how, uh, through different modes of communication, emotional intelligence, and wise decision-making. And it takes you through them sequentially. It has exercises for individuals and for teams. And I have used it in teams. And I have morphed it lately to use it specifically for unconscious bias training. Oh, wow. And so there are updates of the matrix called Unbiased Guide for Leaders uh, and one called Unbiased Guide for Educators. And those two are up on Amazon. And they're very easy to use and they will take you through the process that I articulated to be able to change and grow your brain. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Knowing all that you have been through as we wrap up today, can you share with our audience what are some ways that you take care of yourself on a regular basis to stay emotionally, mentally healthy? One of the things is to recognize that the emotions and the psyche are not separate from the body. And when you have chronic pain, your Emotions are going to go along with it, depression and fear and anxiety. Uh, so some of what I do for myself uh, is very much uh, on the physical. 
as you have seen, I've crashed and burned a number of times. The reasons for it have not gone away. I have a diet that is gluten-free. I also have uh, scarring on my liver from all of this. And so I've gone to no sugar, almost no sugar, almost no processed food. And my liver says thank you. Right? The chronic pain says thank you. And my brain says Finally. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. And then uh, I, I, do, I do work out and I do meditation for the, to calm things down because I can be extremely driven. And because of the genetics with my parathyroid, uh, my adrenaline doesn't turn off. So I have to do it manually. And a lot of people should practice that. Turn it off, get some sleep. Tomorrow's another day. Absolutely. Sleep is so valuable in mental health for sure. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Is there anything else you wanted to share to our audience before we go? Well, over the years, I've collected many writers who will write about all kinds of things, including health and wellness. On my online magazine, AmericanDiversityReport.com. And I invite you to look at them. They're free and enjoy them. And should you like to write, and that includes you, Christy. <laughs> and there are submission guidelines, and I would love to give people a voice. That's what I do. Well, thank you so much, Deborah. I really appreciate your time and your voice. Clearly, you are such an incredible leader, a woman of strength and resiliency and everything you've gone through. And I appreciate your vulnerability and sharing it with us today. I have no doubt that your story is going to save a life. So many times life tragedies result in untreated depression, anxiety, and can lead to suicidal thoughts or attempts. But knowing that there are others out there that have gone through what you have or similar, they will know that they have a voice and they're not alone. So thank you so much for your time today, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, Conversations of Influence and Change. Each show, we bring you a guest of revolutionary influence by living a life of nobility, courage, and authenticity. To meet other Knights of the Round Table or to be a guest on this show, go to christyknights.com. Join us next week as we cross the bridge to meet the next night to join the round table of revolutionary leaders of influence and change. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.